everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it Lessons from Our Living Rooms or Couch Conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when? And well, what do I do when? So that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. All right, well, welcome everyone to this episode today. I'm so um, honored and excited to be here with my guest, Katie Winan. Um, She'll give us a little bit of information about herself in a minute, but it is a pleasure to be able to to roll up sleeves and sit down and have conversations that aren't had enough about transracial adoption. And, you know, we, we scratch the surface and adoptees everywhere deserve parents who are better prepared uh, to, to lead these families and to, I say, do the work to be able to show up fully for their kids. So on that note... Today, we're going to do a deeper dive into, you know, some do's and don'ts and how to get prepared more, better, with harder work and more discomfort, inevitably, uh, for parents along this journey. So um, on that note, Katie, tell us just a little bit about what, what brings you to this, this work. What are your lenses on this work? Yeah, hi, uh, I'm Katie Winan, and I come to this work both personally and professionally. Personally, I was born in Bogota, Colombia, and adopted by my two white parents. They are heterosexual and Christian, so I was raised by my mother and father, 
brought from Columbia to New Jersey and then um, moved from New Jersey to South Florida when I was about three. So I grew up very, yeah, I say Florida. That's where I grew up. (laughs) I grew up in Florida from about age three to age 18. Um, My brother was also adopted from Columbia, but we were not biologically related. So I did have a sibling that I looked like since I don't look like my parents. So that was helpful. And then after college, I worked at a boarding school in Connecticut, um, and a majority of the kids of color, actually a majority of the Latinx kids were adopted by white parents. Um, And then a handful of the black and Asian kids were adopted by white parents as well. I was the only faculty member of color and the only faculty member who was adopted. So of course they were like, Katie can work with all these kids. Um, I was only 23. So also kind of fresh on my journey of like, I'm a young adult in the middle of nowhere, Connecticut, where I don't look like anybody. And I have all these kids of color. And so I got to work with them and their families for the four years that I was there. And when I started grad school and get my master's in English because I was an English major and a teacher. And then I got to work with these kids and their families and connect with them in a way that I never had when I was younger. Um, like they would look at me and say, Miss Wynan, your, your parents look like my parents and you look like me and I'm adopted too. And it just was, I think what I needed at the time. Right. And then I suddenly said, I'm going to go get my master's of social work and work within adoption. So I went to Simmons college now known as Simmons University in Boston um, for their MSW program. And my second year of field training was with Dr. Joyce McGuire Pavo, who's the author of The Family of Adoption. And I worked with Joyce at her center for a solid year and did um, individual and group therapy with adoptees ranging from age five to age 65 maybe that came to some of our groups. And I was like, this is it. (laughs) This is what I want to do. I want to work with adoptees some way. Um, I ended up moving out of Boston to Oakland, California. And Joyce said, call Beth Hall at Pact and Adoption Alliance. You're going to be great. I'm sure she could utilize you in some way. (laughs) And she did. And I have been working with Pact for eight years now. Um, I did my first Pact camp in 2012. And then I came onto staff in May 2013. So I have my MSW and I'm the adoption social worker for our adoption agency. So now I work with families that are looking to adopt. I provide education and preparation uh, locally and nationally for families. I lead support groups for adult adoptees of color and I work with our youth um, during our summer camps. So that's my, my wow. personal and professional. Yeah. So you're just a little bit prepared to have this conversation, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right? Or like I can throw, yeah, throw anything. I mean, that's a so yeah, so valuable. I am I am really aware, and and even in in like having this podcast, where one of the things I talk about is transracial adoption, and yet so often it is the parents' voices that are centered in these conversations, right? Like we just know that the version of adoption that makes its way into the mainstream is so often parent-centered, you know, heroic parent, heroic selfless parents, um, you know, providing a better life uh, to, to young people who are, yeah. are really lucky. Um, yeah. And that, that is so harmful in so many ways. Tell me, has that, has that lucky theme come up for, for like, like, d- did that happen to you when you were growing up? Do you hear that happening for other adoptees? What are Do they talk about that in the groups and things that you do? Do you hear that come up from uh, adoptees? 
Uh, oh, did we talk about that? <laughs> uh, yes. So I can also preface with adoption is not a one-time thing, right? So if a child has joined your family or you're in the process, as soon as they're in your family, they don't stop being adopted. I'm 38 years old and forever my adoption is part of my everyday life. I was just at the doctor and they were asking questions and I said, sorry, I'm adopted. I don't know my medical history. Um, I think there's enough knowledge now that the doctors are like, okay, history unknown, and they just keep it moving. But I have definitely sat with professionals that say, oh, you're adopted. Oh, you're so lucky. That must be so, you must have such a great life. So I've gotten that in my entire life. So since 2005 is when I've been working with adoptees of all ages, like I said, from about five to 70, 75. The number one thing we all hate across the board as adoptees um, is being told we're lucky, asking, oh, do you feel grateful to your parents? They saved you. All of that grateful, lucky you were saved is, I would wager my property. That is like the one thing adoptees hate to hear. And we hear it repeatedly. We hear people say, well, why are you not more grateful? Why are you angry about it? Why are you this? What is going on? So over the years, I have been able to look at somebody and say, should I feel lucky for losing my culture, my language, my traditions? A lot of times they can connect with the idea of basically a fetus, right? So every adoptee in this world mm -hmm. was in a womb and for hopefully nine months, <laughs> unless they were premature, but for about six to nine months, they only heard certain voices, smelled certain things, the vibrations, the laughter, the tears, everything they've ever known is lost in an instant, especially if it's an infant placement. So how am I lucky to have gone from my birth mother in the streets of Columbia to an orphanage with totally different sounds, vibrations, um, things I'm seeing, things I'm hearing, things I'm feeling, right? My So my little senses just got completely jolted a week after I was born because I came to the orphanage a week after I was born. And then I'm in the orphanage for a month and then my little system gets completely jolted by going onto an airplane and going to these white faces <laughs> and this quiet little house in Bergen County, New Jersey. And like, how is that lucky that my first month, two months on this planet were losing everything I ever knew? Um, and then suddenly having to adjust and be told to be grateful. Um, if you're parenting right now and you have a young adoptee and you're like, oh, they're not thinking this, nobody's ever said that to them. Again, I would wager my property that they are thinking this and somebody has said this to them. They're just too scared to tell you. Uh, but every adoptee I've worked with, I hate the word lucky. I've been told it my whole life. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think it gets magnified when race is involved as well, right? There's, oh, the, yeah. there's, the, there's an even greater sense that, that, that the, the like the best thing that we can do for young struggling adoptees of color is to get them with nice white people who aren't going to be flagrantly racist and that that's actually a win yeah. for them all the way. Like, that's another thing yeah. I've done a lot of, I've talked to a lot of white adoptive parents and it's really interesting. We, the ones who are clued in and doing the work and, 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 you know, trying, trying to, to dig deeper and get it right. It still comes up a lot that people know that racism is a problem for white folks. They know that, that, that we have to be the ones to fix it, that it sneaks up in places you don't expect it. And yet they're still convinced it's not actually happening in their own circle with right. their child. It's fascinating. Right. Even the ones who get that it's a problem and yep. that it needs to be addressed still have this belief that in their school or their you know immediate network of friends or immediate family, 
that that their kids aren't being given the additional sense that they're lucky because white neighborhoods are safer, white schools are safe. Like yeah. these are some of the conversations you hear, um, which also brings up the issue of like safe for whom, right? right? Like like what does the danger in all white settings look like for black and brown adoptees? that it doesn't look like for white kids walking around right. in those neighborhoods. We are the ones that are gonna get targeted immediately. If there is a disruption in the classroom and it's a PWI, predominantly white institution, with a white teacher, I'm gonna say wager my property a lot in this interview, but I wager my property, the teacher <laughs> will look at the black boy and immediately place blame on them or look at the brown student and place blame on them. Um, walking through neighborhoods. When I go visit, this is why it never ends. I'm 38 years old and I go visit my parents who live in a predominantly white area, not where I grew up, um, a totally different state, different side of the country, but very white. And I get there and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see my parents and I'm comfortable. And then there are days when they're like, hey, Katie, take the car, go to the supermarket, blah, blah, blah. My parents live on this tiny island where people don't lock their doors. Everybody knows who everybody is. So I hop into my dad's little Miata and everybody knows that's my dad's Miata and I'm cruising along. And then literally like a minute in, I suddenly start to panic because I was like, everybody on this Island knows that this car belongs to my dad. And here's a Brown person driving mm -hmm. Mr. Winan's car. <laughs> and I was like, the cops are going to pull me over. This is going to be a thing again. Like it is a small Island. So I'm a little bit safe because my parents give people a heads up. Like Katie's coming to visit. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. But I, I was there for Christmas and I actually, I missed the opportunity to, to do a teaching moment to my parents. Um, I still am teaching them at 38 and they're in their seventies. I don't think they realized how uncomfortable it is for me to go visit them on this tiny white Island. And they're finally in a place where we can have more discussions around race and what it means for me to be a woman of color. And I totally missed the opportunity, but I feel like I can bring it back up when, when I go again in their supermarket, when I was with my mom, I felt okay. And then she said, why don't you go grab the syrup from the other aisle and I'll wait for our pizzas. So I break apart from my mom and immediately my body tensed up. And I was like, I don't have my mom next to me to be able to say like, this is my daughter. I'm solo by myself, a brown new face on this white island in the supermarket. And I was suddenly like nervous, shaking, grabbed the syrup and immediately went back to my mom because I was like, my safety is very important. And this is 38 years old, but I also recognize I'm in 2020 America <laughs> and I can, people of color can't run, sleep in their bed, go to a movie theater, go to their job, can't freaking do anything. We can't live. So I, and I, I know I have privileges of being a woman and I'm not black, but I am brown. So I'm always fearful that somebody's going to tell me to go back to Mexico, which is not where I'm from. Um, so I have a different messaging that I always have to deal with, but yeah, I, and it's that close to the surface. Right. And I think that's the thing yeah. that these are, that's cumulative micro and macro aggressions, right? It's, it, mm -hmm. it, it, it's cumulative over time that your, your body and your spirit and everything houses the, the reality that the world yeah. treats you differently enough very quickly at times and unexpectedly, right? I mean, sometimes I imagine you can see some of these incidents coming, right? Sometimes you oh, know yeah. you're walking into a situation or like there's a setup or a class topic that came up when you were in school. But a lot mm -hmm. of the times, you know, our experiences of family has been that it's like 
a random, you know, somebody randomly interjecting their biases about adoption or race, either or both, right? They're so entangled in, in the situations with our families. But what I take away from that is how one of the things is just how close to the surf it is. And you're an adult, right? And you're an adult with lived experience who can articulate it, who knows where so many adoptees, I imagine if their parents aren't helping them establish a language to talk about race and racism and what's happening, then they're left Mm -hmm. just with the racing heart, the pounding, like the sense, the confusion, the surprise when people do it. And then, and then it just rattles around in their person and they can't really always put words to it. And I know you do a lot of work around sensory stuff too. So I don't, so you yeah. also have a young kid who might have sensory anxiety, ADHD, other stuff just by being themselves. And then they are feeling all the body responses of I'm the only black person in this space or the only brown or the only Asian or the only indigenous person in this space. So that is added on top of whatever else your child might also be working through. And yeah. I've worked with way too many white parents that are like, we live in the middle of nowhere, Maine, but my kid has never said anything. They're totally fine. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, you're going to call me back in about four years. And I've been at PACT long enough that I have had white families call me back. They call us, oh, our kid is two or three and somebody told us about your organization. I don't think we need it. We're okay. I'm like, great. I'll see you in about four to five years. Yeah. And I have seen numerous of them come back. Hi, we called you back in 2014 and now we want to come to camp seven years later. And I'm like, oh yes, because your kid is now 10 or 11. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I told you this seven years ago, but I know. Yeah. It's the, yeah, I told you so dance. You need your own. I, I, know, told I, you so yeah, I told you so. And then there's, um, I'll never forget. There was one camp where one of the campers I think was in, was being raised in upstate New York, black, black kid with white parents, I think maybe nine, 10, 11, very precocious, very just smart, found the packed pamphlet on their own and handed it to their parents and said, you need to bring me to this camp. I'm sick of being the only kid of color in my, yeah. And they came to Camp West in maybe 2013, 2014, something like that. It was a kid in the age range of nine to 11 who found out about PACT and Adoption Alliance, found out about our PACT camp and and went up to their parent and said, you need to take me to this camp. I'll never forget that. And I was like, man, I wish I was that aware when I was that age. (laughs) So I could have said to my parents, I need to see, I mean, I grew up in South Florida, so I did see a lot of people who look like me. I do hate the word lucky, but I was lucky in that aspect, or I, I had the privilege or the benefit of being raised in South Florida with tons of people who look like me. I went to public school. And then my sophomore year, I went to private school because it was just, it was possible. We could financially afford it. And I went from being one of many kids of color to like six of us. <laughs> um, so I've, I've been in both worlds, right? Like full public school. My best friends were all black and brown. And then I shifted my last three years at home to private school um, and then navigated that world. So well, say a yeah. little bit. I'm curious about that because I think one of the things I find interesting, challenging about so many reasons uh, based in economic racism and straight up racism that school searches, mm-hmm. nothing will point out the divide and the division and the socioeconomic and economic racism, like trying to do a school search that, you know, has representation of black and brown faculty and has lots of resources and, you know, all of those, all of those things. I hear a lot of transracially adoptive parents 
having the belief that or, or clinging to the fact that some of the greater challenges about race and racism are going to happen, you know, police violence and overt, uh, you know, negative language is going to happen for folks in other neighborhoods. It's going to happen for people who are, you know, less resourced. But if they have their kid in predominantly white institutions, they'll need to do some advocating for curriculum, sure, but generally it'll be fine. What was your experience like as one of the only kids of color in those private institutions, or if then later the kids you mentored too, right? What, what are their experiences like? Oh, I was not aware of it in the moment. So a lot of you that are already parenting, your kid might not be fully aware of it in the moment, but then they will grow up. <laughs> and so in the adoptee support group I lead, I have adoptees from age 21 to age 60. So these young 21 year olds are not that far out of high school. Mm -hmm. um, they're POC, they were raised by white parents and they still talk about, oh, well, I went to this private school in whatever. And it's kind of the, the stuff you see on TV is real, right? When you're in an all white classroom and the American history lesson turns to slavery and all the faces turn to look at the black face in the classroom. That is what kids of color are experiencing in PWIs, that, that happens. like. I this was so embarrassing and this is also part of it. If you have adopted a Latinx child, even if they kick and fight and mm. like dig in their heels, you need to get them into dual immersion, language, language class, letting them learn Spanish. They will hate you and fight you <laughs> and go through things, but that's part of being a parent. Yes. Um, and I, I would, I would hope to say that in the long, in the long run and in the long end, they're going to be very happy, happy that you put them into this, into this language class because 16 year old Katie rolled into this predominantly white high school in Boca Raton, Florida, Palm Beach County, which is like the most affluent. I was on scholarship. I didn't live in a gated community and I'm Brown and I was in Spanish one. <laughs> and the amount of kids that wanted to sit at my table because they were just like, oh, look what Katie looks like. She's gonna get, I got C's all through Spanish. So that was also really embarrassing to look mm. the way I look, mm. to sit in Spanish one, two, and three and just barely pass. And now that I'm more aware, I feel like I can look back and be like, oh, you were so nervous. Like you totally, yeah, I just, ugh. it was probably the hardest part for me in that institution because it was like <sighs> yeah people wanted to cheat off my tests and look at my homework and I just have to be like I am raised by white parents who did not put me in language class who would not take me to Miami which was 45 minutes from where I lived because they didn't speak the language which is my birth language so that was a whole nother messaging that I grew up with and that was really tough <laughs> and my one of my best friends in high school was David he was black he was on scholarship and we, I'll never forget, I think it was our junior or senior year. So we're 17, 18 years old. And we could see the tours going around our campus. And we were reading outside the library. And David said, oh, here comes a tour group. Everybody looks pretty white. Let's um, grab our Shakespeare books and start reading so they know that we're smart. And like, we were joking. But now that I can look back, mm. I'm like, oh, this is real. <laughs> like David and I, as a black male and a Latinx female, we were like navigating this white world together and seeing tour groups come through that didn't look like us. And my, my dad would come to my football games and say, where's David? What's his number? And I would just have to say, look for the black legs. And my dad would find David. So like, 
I was in that world for three years. And now that I, I look back, I can definitely see my Spanish class was rough. David and history class, when it came up to the slavery portion of the yeah. teaching, like that's what we had to sit with. And, and I think it's what you hear from parents and you mentioned it already is they, my kid is fine, right? Like they're fine mm-hmm. because it takes, it also takes time to integrate. Not It's not even just, I always say this too. It's not about, it's not always about what is happening to an adoptee. It's also about what's not happening for an adoptee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like in a way, right? So I think yeah. sometimes white folks start to think it's the absence of racial epithets that makes an environment safe, right? Like being called out directly. And yet, because that mirroring process is so important and because having the curriculum represent who you are and learning to code switch and, and like trying to find ways to then connect with other folks who are not white. And yet culturally, I imagine, you know, that process of launching into adulthood, when a lot of what you were seeing and hearing and eating and doing at home is very Mm -hmm. white American based, right? So then did you, was there a process of feeling like a stranger in a strange land than when you were around and immersed among black and brown folks otherwise afterwards? Yeah, I, um, I've had this conversation a lot with my group and with my friends. Um, so visually people look at me and they're like, oh yeah, she's brown. She's definitely not white. So I've had that, but then I open my mouth and I start talking, oh, she doesn't have an accent. Her name's not Maria. Like I've had those stereotypes as well. Mm. And I just, I just had this conversation with a fellow Latinx adoptee who texted me something about their white family celebrating Easter and they showed me a picture and I said, Oh my gosh, look at all those little figurines in the back. Are they precious moments? And my friend texted back and said, those are not precious moments, but my mom has precious moments, the hallmark of the year ornament (laughs) and all these other things. And I said, that's hilarious. I know exactly what that is. Blah, blah, blah. And they texted back and said, they are also in their thirties. They said, you are the first person of color to understand those references. And I was like, yeah, because I, I was raised by white people like you. And they were like, that's right. <laughs> we were both, right? <laughs> so culturally, I'm very American. And then also my father is Dutch, came over to the U.S. in 1969, still sounds like he stepped off the boat. So I also culturally deeply identify with Dutch culture. We celebrate St. Nicholas Day. I know way more about Dutch culture and traditions and foods than I do about my own birth country, which has been really problematic and a journey for me. And then also to learn the history of actually where a lot of the slave ships came from. It was like from the Dutch when I went to the African-American History Museum and I was a mess. (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh, I have Dutch paraphernalia and clothes and stuff. And then I just get so embarrassed because my community right now is very black and brown. I have intentionally established my friendships, my providers, my everything. Everybody is a person of color who I interact with. And looking back, I definitely am more comfortable with Black people than I am with Latinx people who look like me because I can't communicate with them. Mm. And even if I can, they're still... Because I do. I, I have a handful of Latinx friends. majority of them are also adopted by white parents, so they feel safe. But I do have a handful of Latinx friends who were not adopted, are bilingual, but they also tend to also be social workers or therapists or <laughs> clinicians. So they come with that lens of, okay, I know, right. I, I don't hang out with Latinx um, doctors or lawyers <laughs> because they, I just don't think they have the brain understanding training of like what adoption really is yeah. um, and what it means. So 
I get very nervous around people who look like me, which is ironic. I live in the Fruitvale neighborhood of Oakland, <laughs> which is basically little Central America. <laughs> um, and that has been a journey. I've been in Fruitvale since 2015. I cannot talk with my neighbors who are monolingual, but there's also a sense of safety for me of, I look like everybody here. And, and they look at me and they're not scared, even though sometimes internally, I'm like, oh my gosh, they're gonna think I'm white because I was raised by white parents but they've never seen my parents and they look at me and think, oh, she's Latina, but she just can't speak. That's cool. But because of being adopted, I run through all this stuff in my head of like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't cook. I can't speak. And I, I just get so nervous. And really they just want to say hello. And I'm like, Katie, you know how to say hello in Spanish. You can say <laughs> hello to your neighbor. I love sitting in my backyard and all I hear is people speaking in Spanish to each other, mariachi music, so then I just feel deeply connected to my people. So it's, it's been a journey. Yeah, wow. No, that sounds hard and beautiful and complicated and, yeah. and confusing. And, yes. And, and hearing loudly and clearly to messaging around exposing to language when, when you can also mirrors and mentors and sounds and sights and smells, but mm -hmm. other adoptees as pivotal as well, yes. right? Because there's a, an experience within an experience. It sounds like, right. There's yes. a distinctness to that. So, so if you're an adoptive parent and you're getting the message early, hopefully that you need mentors and you need to intentionally seek out spaces, there's sort yes. of a dual track at the very least a dual track that you would recommend, yeah? So a couple things. There was something that you said to me years ago uh -oh. <laughs> in, our, in our work together where you said, I'm trying to get this family to recognize the messaging of white is right and how that's not what we, and ever since you've said that to me, I have been like, oh my gosh, that is spot on. Everybody thinks white is right. So everybody thinks these kids of color, myself, adults of color are so, like you said, lucky, grateful, whatever, to be raised in this Maybe in the moment we were, because we didn't know better. But now, as I sit with my adoptees, they are just like, mm-mm. <laughs> and especially after the last year that has happened mm. within the States and the murder of George Floyd, the number of adoptees who have attended my group has probably tripled. I get new adoptees every month. I sit with over 50 adoptees of color every month. I'd say about 90% of them are raised by white parents. The other 10% are raised in same race placements. Let's take a minute to also say they do happen. <laughs> That's a yes, whole other topic and conversation. Just because yeah. our families are more conspicuous and visible doesn't mean we're Correct. the only kind that like black and brown people do adopt for those of you who they are do. doing that defensive thing in your head where yes. you're trying to give us white people a break because we adopt, like it's more complicated than that. But anyway, sorry, keep going. So you sit with the whole flow of folks. <laughs> yes, well, and also white people adopt white kids, which is never spoken about, oh, yes. <laughs> which was new to me in my, when I was 23 and I taught at that school, I did this adoption weekend and all these white kids start coming into the room. And I was like, you're in the wrong space. You need to go next door. And they said, no, Miss Winan, we're here with you. We're doing the adoption weekend. I said, no, you're not, you're next door. They kept whining, we're here with you. I said, but you're white, you're not adopted. Because my whole experience mm -hmm. of adoption was you're a kid of color to white parents. That's all I ever saw in you. Think about that. And I had these 14 and 15 year old white kids looking at me saying, I was adopted and it blew my mind. <laughs> and I was like, right, white people adopt white kids. Black people adopt black kids. Latinx people adopt Latinx kids. Like it's just transracial is out there and, and Hollywood and the world romanticizes it 
and brings it to the forefront. And we can't hide in, in quotes. We and can't hide. Think about that too, though, honestly, when you think about race, that the assumption is that resourced folks who can provide are white and people who, mm-hmm. who need to be housed and homed and loved are always from broken systems family mm-hmm. and otherwise that are black and brown. I mean, I, yeah. I think that's a really poignant, like that other yeah. people outside the world of adoption forget. And, and to imagine how that lands on a little kid who is also looking around and thinking about who they know that is also adopted. How can they, right? Kids learn through association and correlation. Yeah. If, if, they're, if they think that everybody around them is adopted and one thing the adopters have in common and one thing the adoptees have in common, you can't help but ascribe a power of privilege or rightness or, or betterness. <laughs> I think so much of the learning that happens for kids about race is so incidental and accidental and correlative and, and unspoken that that messaging itself, right, sinks into yeah. a point where you're wearing it in your bones and, and like shocked by the idea that, that there are also, yeah, other same race matches. Really appreciative uh, of you making the time to come here today. And um, I look forward to all the ways that you've held my feet to the fire over the years, <laughs> uh, directly and indirectly. And um, I'm really hopeful for, yeah, adoptive families everywhere that this word keeps, keeps getting out there. So thank you for your time today, Katie. I appreciate it. Yes, you're welcome. Well, thanks for listening today. And if you'd like to find me other places, come take a look at my website, www.drlauraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter and keep in touch and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation on Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today.